This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Before we started uh, sitting this morning, a few of us were online and it was a little chit-chat in which I think it was Kurt said something like, I haven't lived in Chicago for more than 20 years, but I still think of myself as a Chicagoan. And I thought that uh, remark was a, would make a very good segue into uh, a discussion of uh, Jay Garfield's uh, discussion of the self and its continuity uh, over time. And it, and whether we need a self to talk about that kind of um, ongoing memory that we think of as mine, or that we think that there's an I that's having that memory. And it sort of brings up the question whether, as a good Buddhist, uh, Kurt should uh, suddenly get embarrassed about, you know, saying, oh, I, you know, I'm still a Chicagoan, you know, uh, 20 years later. Uh, is that claiming that he's got a persistent, essential self, right? See, Garfield goes through a variety of arguments that say in order to explain memory over time, or the unity of consciousness in the moment so that I experience all experiences is my experience. Uh, I, I drink a cup of coffee and I'm aware that it's me drinking it, that I'm tasting it, and that I'm the same person who just brushed my teeth and got dressed in the morning, that somehow all these different experiences belong to me. And he recounts various philosophical traditions that basically argued that there must be a basic difference between the subject of experience and the object of experience. And since I'm aware of my body and aware of my mind, I must be distinct from my mind and my body. That the self or the Atman must be something behind or separate from mind and body if it's going to be aware of those things. And he talks about Kant saying that time and space are constructions of the mind that allow us to have experience, but they must be separate from the mind. 
and that the mind itself must stand outside of time and space, be transcendental. And I don't think Garfield mentions it, but for Kant it was of paramount importance that by standing outside of time and space, outside of cause and effect, the self could be have freedom, uh, not be determined, and have moral responsibility. And we always see in these discussions of the self or the soul, I think a moral or theological agenda creeping in such that there'll be something that can be immortal. There'll be something that can uh, uh, have moral responsibility and freedom and choice and so forth. But I think that so much of what gets us entangled in these discussions, which can, I, I admit, can seem sort of empty and philosophical, and you can be wondering, what does this have to do with my practice? I think why it's important is that we subtly set up uh, uh, some very strange ideals for ourselves when we start talking about no self and we get some strange ideas about what that's supposed to look like. Uh, what's supposed to be different? Maybe some of you are old enough to um, uh, have heard the uh, Indian uh, philosopher uh, Krishnamurti. Uh, he was a very uh, interesting character who uh, had a very uh, unusual life in that as a uh, young child in India, somehow he was picked out of a crowd by these British theosophists who were uh, in India. And he was somehow chosen by them to be Maitreya. They were convinced this boy was going to grow up and be the, the new Buddha. And they raised, they took him away from his family. The family apparently was very happy to let him and his brother be uh, raised by these uh, foreigners. Uh, and he was somehow groomed to be uh, the spiritual master. Well, perhaps not unsurprisingly, uh, this didn't work out as expected. And I don't know at what age it happened, but maybe as a young man in his 20s, uh, he went through a terrible breakdown slash breakthrough in which uh, the whole burden of being the future Buddha was just too much for anybody to bear. And uh, he came out of that breakdown sort of repudiating all the people who uh, tried to put that mantle on him. But instead, he sort of 
announced that through his breakdown, he had um, uh, completely ceased to have any uh, personal identity and had uh, gone beyond uh, thought. And if you ever heard him speak, he was a very brilliant and charismatic speaker. He was he could come out and to Madison Square Garden or some enormous hall, come out, put a wooden chair in the middle of the stage and just sit down and address the audience as if he was talking to one person and just hold them spellbound. He was a very uh, charismatic and interesting figure that way. But one of the things is uh, if he was ever asked about this strange childhood of his, he would refer to what happened to that boy. He never spoke of it happening to him. And he had this very odd quirk of speech, which he never used the personal pronoun. He never used the word I, didn't have one, I guess. So he wouldn't speak of I. If he would refer to the speaker, the speaker who is sitting in front of you now is, you know, so forth. And I won't go try to go into anything about what his teaching was, because in fact, he didn't, he didn't say he had any teaching. He wasn't a teacher. And uh, he didn't believe in meditation or any practice at all. He just said, you have to directly realize uh, the non-existence of self and, and of thought and breakthrough. Um, but what was pernicious about all this, in a way, for people who followed him, is he had all these um, quirks that then got sort of identified with enlightenment, you know, that, well, if you really have this realization, you do things like stop using the word I, you know, and it's all, all of that. It was very, uh, sort of this idiosyncratic picture of, oh, that's what it must look like. Um, and I thought of him also in terms of, um, a psychoanalyst, um, named Wilfred Bion, uh, another charismatic teacher, but who got very famous for a single phrase where he said, the analyst should approach every session uh, without, it, without any memory or desire. And everybody sort of, you know, had this wow kind of, you know, reaction to that of just total presence you know, with no preconceptions whatsoever, right? Just immediately right there with your patients, right? But what was that actually supposed to look like? What does that mean? You can't really want your analyst to show up with no memory, like, what, what was your name again? <laughs> what have we been talking about, right? You know, I don't think anybody wants that. And no desire, I suppose, ideally means no expectations. 
right? Not trying to make you turn out to be this kind of person or that kind of person. But, uh, you know, presumably that doesn't mean just sitting calmly if the person walks over to the window, opens it, and starts climbing out on the ledge, right? I mean, you have uh, some desire, I assume, to keep a person alive and keep them present. So it was a kind of catchphrase that uh, was probably very good for certain kinds of classical analysts to uh, get out of their head and sort of have this admonishment to be just immediately present. But it also creates a kind of fog where we, we imagine uh, this kind of concept-free, perfect presence, right? And I, I, I think that Zen students have to be very aware of the background metaphors and language and pictures that sneak into their practice that condition our just intuitive sense of, are we doing this right? Is it going well or is it going badly? And it's very hard not to have, you know, at the most basic level, the sense that, well, if I'm sitting here and my mind is wandering, that's no good. What meditation really is supposed to be, you know, we all hear this perfect, clear blue sky, not contaminated with thoughts or feelings. Very hard not to grow up in any kind of meditation tradition and not to carry around in the back of our mind some idealization like that. And sometimes those things get described in very impressive terms, usually with capital letters, on things like pure awareness or pure consciousness. Now, I think though, you know, I think I just have this ongoing campaign against capital letters because I think they lead us down this uh, path uh, that looks like it's labeled aspiration, but is really self-hate. Uh, it, it seems like it's the pursuit of an ideal, but it's really a kind of constant rejection of our mind and our body and our life uh, as it is. Thinking again of some of those old timers, uh, maybe some of you remember uh, uh, the Gestalt therapist, uh, Fritz Perls. He used to um, distinguish, uh, if I recall it right, between chicken shit, bullshit, and elephant shit. Uh, and chicken shit is the kind of little stuff that pisses us off, you know, day to day, you know, like I get up in the morning and I go into the kitchen and I see Jessica has left dishes in the sink last night. Pisses me off. Why does she not just 
wash out her teacup and put it in the, you know, the dryer, the washing machine. But that's still chicken shit stuff. That's not anything that uh, anybody should really concern themselves with. But the next level up is bullshit. You know, and that's the kind of stuff we get from uh, politicians, you know, who promise, I'll balance the budget. There'll be no more inflation. We can not have to worry about climate change. And bullshit is the kind of promise that just operates with a disregard of truth, right? But Pearl said there's something even beyond bullshit, and that's elephant shit. And that, and for that, you need a philosopher, right? <laughs> and to me, uh, words like uh, pure consciousness, pure awareness, this is elephant shit, right? This is the kind of thing that really stinks up a room for a very long time, right? And it's very hard to ever get rid of. Uh, I think Zendo's just reek of elephant shit. And how we ever cleanse ourselves of that kind of thing, unfortunately, it usually means we have to fight philosophy with philosophy, right? We have, we have to probably get down in the mud to deal with it because it's built into uh, metaphors and what we think of as common sense or, like I say, our aspirations. So that we take for granted that, of course, the enlightened master is sitting there with this pure, clear mind, and that that's what I'm going after. And that all this crap in my mind, it's just contamination over and over and over again. And we, we end up consciously or unconsciously engaged in meditation as a purification practice. And as long as we do that, uh, we will never get a glimpse of ordinary mind is the way. Right? Ordinary mind is the refutation of that kind of capitalizing elephant shit aspirational project of putting some other better head on top of the one I have now. The problem is that it's, for a lot of people, it's very deflationary. Uh, it's not what they came here for. They, we all come, in a way, out of a certain kind of self-hate, of not being able to tolerate who and what we are, whether it's our vulnerability or our mortality. And we're always in the pursuit of some ideal. And I think it's probably inevitable that Zen and other practices uh, basically trick beginning students. And they... Uh, they seem to promise the thing that we're looking for. And we talk about enlightenment experiences and we talk about, you know, we read them all these koans of these mysterious, paradoxical, or, you know, wonderful encounters. 
And inevitably, people will sort of say, oh, there it is. That's what I'm after. If only I work hard enough, I can get it. But uh, Zen is... Uh, It's a big trick. <laughs> we, lure, we lure you in with the, uh, the fantasy or promise of enlightenment. But it's not what you think it is. It's not what you want. Right? I used to tell people, look at me. I'm, I'm the good news and the bad news. Right? <laughs> right? Somebody like me can be a, a Zen teacher. I guess that's the good news. The bad news is that's the Zen teacher. <laughs> that, that's what we get at the end. Right? This is uh, our dilemma. We, uh, the hardest thing is to imagine ourselves as the embodiment of the thing that we uh, have been aspiring to all this time. Uh, Strange as it is, most of us really love the smell of elephant shit. We can't get enough of it. Uh, but as uh, best I can, I'm going to scrub down the zendo and get rid of that stink. <laughs>